0: To the Management Lab, I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of
1: Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Uri Gall from the University of Sydney Business School. Hello, Sean. Hello, Uri. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing?
0: Really, really well. I'm
1: fantastic. Really?
0: Yeah. Uh, pretty well. You know what I've noticed lately that when I when people pass me in the hallway and they say, how are you doing? I think most people just want you to say fine or good or something like that, mm-hmm. and I I notice of late that I've been saying ah, keep plugging away.
1: Uh, yeah, I've, I've, that's uh, you've heard. I've heard you say that before.
0: I, I do okay. say it, but then I've decided I should maybe try and move away from that because it's kind of dark. It's like, well, I survive.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very northern European kind of answer. Is it really interesting? You spent more time in Northern Europe. Well, yes, yeah, Scandinavians or they're not shy about their um their hardships they don't they don't hide them which
0: is funny cuz they always rank near the top of the happiest countries in the
1: world yeah so you know what as you know i i used to live in denmark and i for the life of me i did not understand how these surveys work i cannot reconcile <laughs> <laughs> the very consistent results of these surveys which almost always place denmark and norway i think at the top, and maybe finland as well at the top in of finland the list. yeah 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 and then when you go there people are so serious yeah and, yeah and uh, so many people with various types of um m- mental disorders of different you know in, of different levels of severity so i i do not understand uh how these i i i doubt the validity of these surveys interesting and, and, and yeah, also of course you know it. you know happiness is a subjective co- concept of course
0: and americans i think always rank pretty low and yet uh, the one of the big stereotypes is that we're constantly smiling like that we're smi- grinning idiots. But, you know, I don't know. I to me, if the if the stereotype is returning to our last topic, if the stereotype is you guys smile a lot, it doesn't strike me as a terrible quality.
1: <laughs> no, but it's not just that when you ask going back to what you said before, if he asks uh, uh, an American a typical american how are you doing and they would usually give you a a, a positive answer i'm i'm doing mm-hmm. well i'm doing great I'm wonderful whereas you know you and i have a a, a mutual fin <laughs> friend yes 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 and when you ask him how are you doing and he says fine so you know that his fine is like nine out of ten on his case, yeah right right if not yes. more. Whereas your great, not you individually, but an American great could be a 5 out of 10. Right. Subjectivity. Subjectivity. It's pretty interesting. Yeah.
0: So listen, before we launch into our discussion today, I want to call atten- people's attention
1: to the fact that you were on another
0: podcast earlier in the week, or did it just release
1: yesterday or something? Yeah. So it's both a podcast and a, and a radio show. So it's actually going to be on the radio as well. I think, um, yeah, The the podcast episode... Dropped yesterday, I think, and the radio show, uh, which is aired here in Australia, is going to be broadcast on Sunday, I believe. And this
0: is the Minefield podcast on the Australian Broadcasting Company. I'm going to say the whole thing because even though I'm sure you in Australia call it ABC, mm-hmm. there is a separate network called ABC
1: here in the States. So I want to disambiguate. Yeah, that's useful. That's a useful disambiguation. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, nice. <laughs> nice.
0: Uh, But anyway, I thought the discussion was really good. Uh, So you were on to discuss deepfakes and the implications of deepfake technology with some discussion about the uh, recent controversy, fiasco, what would you call it, Uh, hubbub, uh, relating to a, a deepfake of Taylor Swift that was put out there that was considered deeply problematic, seems pretty problematic. I was super disappointed to hear you say, I don't know who that guy is you're talking about, and it was Travis Kelsey, (laughs) Travis Kelsey, the American football player, who, for the record, uh, is from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, so about a stone's throw from where you and I studied together. I did not know that. The Kelsey brothers went to Cleveland Heights High School, I believe, and they're from Cleveland Heights, so literally just up the hill. You and I certainly had many beers back in the day. At various places in cleveland heights
1: on a uh, shout out to coventry street uh, which yeah. is still alive and kicking coventry cedar lee yeah absolutely yeah two yeah. different spots but so yeah i, I you know that that name did not ring a bell clearly
0: yeah well you clearly don't spend much time uh paying attention to um uh, something the american football the nfl rather uh ratings have gone up like uh, american uh, nfl is by far the most popular sports league in the united states but the viewership is traditionally let's say heavily male mm. but because of this relationship with taylor swift female viewership of the nfl has something like doubled really in the last six months yeah really it's gone way up wow uh it's kind of wild
1: yeah i yeah. i read some well actually we're drifting away from the topic of the conversation I I was going to say that (laughs) we did talk about deep fakes and um yeah kind of the I guess most eminent examples of this of of recent time is what happened with um Taylor Swift and if anybody hasn't um heard about what happened uh, a fake video of her apparently um in some sort of a pornographic scenario popped up on Twitter and as a consequence Twitter disabled all searches that had anything to do with Taylor Swift for a period of time on on the platform. So if you search her name, nothing would come up or it it, it gave a note note that the search is not allowed for the moment or something like that. Interesting. And we talked about generative AI technologies, right? Because that's kind of the, to a large degree, the driving engine behind um, the increasing prominence of various types of deep fakes and how they are possibly going to influence The integrity of elections in 2024 Mm -hmm. because this is the year where we have anywhere from one and a half to two billion people going to the polls so it's going to be a a challenging year from this perspective
0: yeah i would uh, encourage anyone who's interested in these developments to go and listen to that episode again it's called the minefield is the podcast hosted by waleed ali and scott Scott stevens stevens Yeah. yeah Uh, it's a good. Dis- it was a good discussion.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. And the topic we're focusing on today is related to that.
0: Absolutely. And I think maybe when we wrap up, I want to loop back to how it relates to some of these uh, deepfake elements. But today we're going to be talking about, uh, I guess we could go with the umbrella category of extended reality. But this would include virtual reality and augmented reality and the business applications thereof. So Uri, why don't you start? I think a lot of people probably have had some exposure to these uh, th- these technologies, but why don't you go ahead and start us off by defining our terms for us?
1: Yeah, OK, so virtual reality refers to a simulated experience that imitates the real world, or at least some aspects of the real world, um, typically using specialized hardware and our software. So many people will be familiar with different types of headsets and like goggles like devices that we will put on our faces. And uh, once we do that, we kind of get immersed into a, a, a virtual reality or world that's divorced from the actual physical environment within which we we exist.
0: Yeah, that divorced from is an important element here because the idea with virtual reality is that it's fully immersive. That you are in the the digitally rendered space entirely and disconnected from
1: your current present space. Now, I have a question. When we are, so I've, I, I think I've used it a couple of times. A few years ago, I was given a, a demonstration of it at, at a, um, like an innovation hub within within a bank of all places, uh, in Sydney, in Australia. Would a virtual environment of that sort necessarily involve an avatar? Or would it be kind of a point of view, sort of a scenario whereby we don't have, we don't see ourselves as a, as a digital entity or is it? Uh, So
0: you can you could see yourself as a digital entity. Like if you were to look, I guess, in a mirror within an environment or you could see your hands if you put them up in front of you, but it would not necessarily involve um, an avatar. No, I will say all of these things we're going to talk about have very obvious applications to this immersion emergence of the or re-emergence is probably a better uh framing of the metaverse uh concept mm-hmm.
1: okay so uh how how do you want to structure the conversation let's uh, navigate us through well
0: wait i want you first to now hit augmented reality and distinguish it from
1: virtual reality So augmented reality, unlike virtual reality, is the idea whereby we superimpose digital elements onto our physical reality. So things that we look at um, in our physical, um, like in our physical vicinity, like uh, for instance, right now um, people can't see it, but I'm holding a a ball in my hand, like a a hard ball, like a tennis ball sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So an AR situation would be superimposing different elements on top of this ball like I could color it in different colors or I could situate in different environments create like a you know maybe a sea or I could put it in the sky um or add different types of things to it that would only exist digitally but not physically um next to the ball per se and there are different applications for AR right and but I, I know you had one specific one in mind
0: well I think just the the one that I think was most has been most widely experienced by most people was the Pokemon Go game from a couple years back where basically people could go in search of Pokemon um where the, it was what was what is called location-based augmented reality so it's you know based on certain locations you basically use the app to go around and you're looking through your phone and you're seeing the world through your camera through the camera on your phone, but then when you got to a location where there was a Pokemon on the camera, the uh an image of the the Pokemon you were searching for would be located there. This was super popular with kids in the US, probably about five years ago, I think.
1: Yeah, it, it shot up to um to fame very, very quickly. Within a matter of days almost it felt like everybody was talking about this and then it kind of disappeared almost as quickly as it had showed up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, well, that sort of, that excitement about the novelty is one of the things I want to talk about when we discuss sort of the applications, uh, longer term applications of, of this technology. Um, and as we did, as usual, we went and went through some of the literature on the technologies. And a lot of the literature is very, uh, what you would call design science, right? It's about sort of creating the tools, creating the applications, um but some of it is more about uh certainly what we were interested in is the organizational or business applications of the technology and i i know one of the oldest articles we looked at was from december of 2017 and this was in harvard business review an article by michael porter and james Heppelman. uh michael porter uh is is a i would almost say legendary figure in business strategy environments uh one of the first thing, one of the first models people learn in an MBA course is Porter's Five Forces mm-hmm. to uh, evaluate the strategic dynamics within a marketplace. Um, and in that, that article was called Why Every, Every Organization Needs an Augmented Reality Strategy. And, you know, they, they sell it hard, right? Like in that piece, they're talking about how this is going to be basically the future of digital marketplaces, digital environments, and, and, Argue hard for why uh, this needs to be part of every organization's planning going forward. How are they going to integrate augmented reality into their ways of working? And it just struck me, you know, that was seven years ago, mm-hmm. or six, I guess. It was December of 2017, so r- roughly six years ago. And and this kind of touches. I, I think they make some some interesting arguments for why it's important, but you know maybe I'm a little biased by the degree to which things like generative AI sort of flipped, you know, from, from when you heard, first heard the term chat GPT to when most of us were experimenting with and using it was, you know, a a matter of weeks. And here we are six years later. And, you know, I don't know that we've seen that the real turning that the Porter and Heppelman argue for, I think it's still
1: maybe forthcoming, but. But It it might be because chat GPT is a, As a software application, right? So you don't need to have any specialized or expensive hardware equipment to be able to use it and experience the transformative potential that it has.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I I think uh, the infrastructure needs are definitely a part of it. But it, with augmented reality, you don't necessarily need specialized hardware. Again, the most popular augmented reality application used people's simple smartphones
1: but so you said they made a few a few arguments in in the article what did do you want to run through them real quick so that we know what they are
0: uh sure so one argument is around enhancing human decision making so basically saying the use of this augmented reality can basically uh reduce cognitive load when you're you know working in an environment you can basically have through augment augmentation augmented reality you can have information at your fingertips So one very common application of this technology or argued application of this technology is things is in domains like maintenance work, right? Where someone working on, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, an electrical box or, you know, uh, an engine or something like that could look at the device, look at the, the thing they're working on and have directions essentially appear while they're still seeing the And again, this is specific to augmented rather than digital or virtual uh, reality. Um, Could see instructions or, you know, pointers or something that tells them where to look, things like that. Mm -hmm. So rather than have this cognitive load of sort of searching for things, Mm -hmm. it's given to you in the environment or in the tool.
1: I think another example is... um cockpits and and Mm -hmm. specialized um vr enabled helmets which pilots specifically i think fighter pilots have been using for honestly for decades now so a lot of the the details of the user interface would be embedded into the helmet so Mm -hmm. wherever you looked within the cockpit that information moved with you so you wouldn't have to look for it and, and you know, go search for different things in different areas within the cockpit as you flew the plane because everything is, you know, as you could imagine in a, in a fighter jet uh, is very fast moving. So you don't have much time to waste by looking to the left and looking to the right, searching for buttons or whatnot. So everything is kind of embedded into your um, natural field of vision. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that 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 would be another way in which it would kind of reduce your cognitive load or your, um, you know, the effort that would be required to make decisions on the fly. No pun intended.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. A similar application that is noted in that same article is things like navigational assistance, right? Where rather than have a separate GPS device in your car where you have to continually be looking at your, you know, the ways on your phone or something where it's telling you when to turn and whatnot, it could actually be superimposed on the screen so that you're driving along and it could essentially pop up a little arrow saying, you know, turn here.
1: When you say screen, do you mean the windshield or what screen? The windshield. The yeah, windshield. yeah, the windshield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, it actually does exist, right? There the are certain cars that actually do have this functionality already.
0: Yeah, I believe that's true. Not not mine.
1: <laughs> what else do they mention in the article?
0: Um, so they they sort of delve into so the the enhancing decision making is the key piece, but then then hmm. they just sort of delve into some of the key capabilities, like enabling visualization. Um so uh, one of the domains where I think we've seen uh, some early adoption of this is in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And we actually, one of the articles we read, and we can come to that later, but it talks about specifically biomedical applications of both virtual and augmented reality, and they're pretty significant. So simple things like there is a company called AccuVein that basically enables a clinician to, to, to identify, to visualize the vein under uh someone's skin you know if they're gonna give the person an IV and any of us who've ever had an IV have probably had the experience of the the clinical care provider struggling to find a vein um and so that's a very simple way in which it could e- ease a, a routine process uh, just by visualizing or again you know you're looking at an engine you have to maintain and it you know highlights the area that you should be working on or looking at Instruction and guiding is another thing that they highlight here, which is uh, training is one of the really significant applications that gets a lot of attention in this literature. So could we use augmented reality to train personnel on uh, on anything? You know, you're learning a new software application. If you have an augmented reality uh, uh, application operating, you could, you know, visualize where to go and how to enact things you want to within that tool.
1: Yeah, and and this is an application that's been for like in in real life it's been used for many many decades so pilots have been training on the flight simulators like fully immersive flight simulators for literally decades and um i believe firefighters have their own simulators because you you know it's a pretty intense situation to be in to fight a fire and you have you want to be ready and you want to be able to deal with the different complexities and um, surprises that might come come at you, and be able to cope with different scenarios. And you don't want to be you. You don't want to have to do it for the first time when you actually when you're fighting a real fire. So yeah, these flight simulators, um, they're you know fully immersive VR applications or or technologies that are extremely useful and critical, um, in all these in in these in these cases. And I'm I'm pretty sure police officers do that as well.
0: Uh, so I don't know about the police case. the The firefighter one's kind of interesting because, yeah, I can see real safety benefits to that since they have a mask on when they're going into a fire anyway. Uh,
1: oh, but that's augmenting. different. That would be AR. Yeah. I'm talking about the training facility. The training facility. Oh, would be VR. I see. I see. So you know, flight simulators for pilots. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. so. So my my sure. my dad was a a pilot for many years and. F- for decades he'd he'd go to different flight simulators in different places in the world by the way where different companies were training they were sending their pilots to train there and so you'd be sitting inside a room and Mm -hmm. and the whole thing it's like a massive construction that simulates a, a a cockpit so the thing would move like physically move to simulate the movements of a plane in flight in real flight and all the machinery inside would be exactly identical to to the machinery that would exist within an, an actual plane but obviously it should be on the ground and it would be a fully immersive a uh, fully immersive experience
0: and and uh, realistic high high
1: yeah hyper realistic
0: yeah uh, and the last the last application that's noted in this particular piece but I think again it, it deals with some of the applications is interaction so one of the things that, that people are envision uh, envis- envisioning, For this technology is that it could become uh, a new mechanism for uh, meetings and interactions between people who are physically separated Mm -hmm. i think in that case it would probably be the the virtual reality rather than the augmented reality but uh, really embedding people or making people feel that they have a, a social presence with someone else even though they are physically separated
1: so that would be a scenario where an avatar, let's say of me, would exist digitally in a virtual space, and that avatar would meet with your digital avatar in that same virtual space, right? Like a metaverse kind of scenario where we could have meetings and talk about things and go for a walk or whatnot.
0: Yeah, not even just avatars as we usually think about them. Did you see the interview that Lex Friedman did with Mark Zuckerberg several months back?
1: i did not i know what you're talking about i i so they did in meta yeah
0: they they both had virtual reality goggles on they were separated they were on separate coasts of the united states but it was a pretty wild experience because they have digital renderings of themselves uh, that looks pretty darn realistic there's a little bit of uncanny valley you know there's there's a degree to which when you're seeing the digital representation you can tell it's digital but not by much you know it's not like back in the days of the Polar Express where the digitally rendered humans are so obviously fake
1: yeah but then these two um digital renditions would be would would coexist in a virtual space right
0: right right so it is it looks like it, so they in addition to them occasional shots of the two of them outside of the virtual environment. Most of the interview is shown in the virtual environment. It looks like two two guys sitting across from one another, having a conversation yeah. in a black room.
1: Yeah. Is that is that application financially viable today for many organizations, do you think, or is it still prohibitively expensive?
0: Let's return to that in one second, because I think That's a key question with regard to challenges to firms wanting to adopt or experiment Mm -hmm. in this space. Um, I think it might be worth just touching on a couple of the other applications. So, we've talked about um, training, meeting, you know, creating interaction, uh, interactive environments, uh, the healthcare domain, lots of uh, potential for sort of like supporting surgical activities with the augmentation. One of the maybe more obvious ones that we have only briefly alluded to is entertainment mm-hmm. right certainly most of the early adoption of of digital technologies or sorry virtual reality when people were buying the Oculus Rift device and things like that was for entertainment purposes or gaming you know video game and i i think it's very likely that we're going to see dramatic growth of virtual reality applications in on the entertainment front and then the, another one that seems to appear quite frequently in the literature is marketing. Yeah. So a lot of the early adoptions of virtual reality or augmented reality is in marketing. So for example, IKEA the furniture store uh has an application where people can, you know, direct direct their camera to their own living room and then choose an item and it will show what that item would look like in their living room. Yeah. And so it essentially enab- enables people to try things out and see how it would look for them rather than having to purchase it, install it, and decide, oh, I don't like this at all.
1: Or in a similar fashion, no pun intended, uh, we could try on clothes and see how we look in different clothes without actually having to buy them first.
0: I'm thinking that pun was
1: fully intended is, is how it felt. <laughs> It was intentional for like for like two seconds before I said it. Yes, that's true. Yeah,
0: um, there was a watch company. I think it was maybe Swatch. I'll have to look through our notes here. But a watch company that basically enables people to you know see how a, wa- a given watches would look on their own arm,
1: and also in the industrial space, and more more so in the uh, sorry in design space, and more so industrial design space, like buildings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. um which now occurs to I me mean, that's what I did my PhD on some 20 odd years ago <laughs> on the use of 3D modeling tools in the architecture industry mm-hmm. but that's basically what these tools enable designers and architects and engineers to do, right because they simulate different design uh, d- different um, um elements of buildings like structures mm-hmm. and you can m- create and manipulate them, in a virtual environment without having to build them first sort of kind of to test what it would look like uh both from a design perspective but also from a functional perspective like like how durable the building would be what would be the different types of interactions between different types of systems within a certain section of the building because as you can imagine buildings are you know very complex architectural structures and there are many considerations that need need to be um Um, need to be looked at and so these virtual environments where you can design and manipulate and put things together they're both extremely helpful but they save a ton of money
0: yeah so i think i think we will see certainly in construction in manufacturing in general right any 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 manufacturing that involves design activities i think we're going to see widespread adoption of these tools um then one last application that I thought was quite interesting that I had not considered, and this was highlighted in an article we read in a journal called Digital Health by Adhiaru and Kemp called Virtual Reality as a tool to promote well-being in the workplace. And in that particular study, what they did is work with, again in the healthcare domain, they took clinicians, clinical care providers. And they used a virtual reality device to basically enable them to do short relaxation exercises. So mm-hmm. during the day, they could put on the virtual reality and you know, go to a beach or go to, a, you know, go to in finger quotes. And just sort of take 20 minutes and, and go to, you know, put yourself in what feels like in, an outdoor environment in nature uh just to just to improve mood, and the study found you know statistically significant improvements in feelings of happiness and relaxation and decreases explicit decreases in feelings of sadness, anger, and anxiety,
1: yeah, and heart rate,
0: yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, I gotta
1: say that was I was really um I- impressed with these with these um findings and and they're pretty consistent across different studies as well. I, I did not think that this sort of a uh, you know, contrived environment would be so effective to reduce stress and maybe part of my um, my bias comes from do you remember that episode the Big Bang Theory episode where um, <laughs> Sheldon sits in his living room with these got these VR goggles on and sits on the couch and then um, Leonard comes in and is like what are you doing and he says I'm taking a walk and he t- like, takes a walk in this virtual reality by the beach or something because he's too concerned or too afraid or too apprehensive about being in the a- actual outdoors.
0: To actually go outside. I did and, not see that episode, but it, uh, and I'm like, it sounds like it.
1: Yeah, there's no way this is actually effective or at least that effective. But then you know, we have all these studies that demonstrate these very significant results in like different types of stress reduction markers. That's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was just an application that I had not considered um, in my general scanning of these technologies.
1: And I also I, I wonder, I've never heard anyone that I know who works in an organization talk about these things being used anywhere in the workplace. Have you ever heard anybody talk about this?
0: No, which is one of the things I think this this could maybe then turn us to some of the challenges, because, again, that article, that first article we referenced from Porter and Heppelman six years ago, if the if it was that promising you would think that we would see it all over the place and maybe people have used it with ikea or done pokemon go or something but i have you know seen very few examples and just in preparing for this discussion i went to look for examples and you keep getting the same ones right they they, they keep re- returning to those same few examples that we just cited um and so the question is why has it not been more widely adopted right now my guess is, I honestly do think that we are now going to see that rapid uptake of adoption of a lot of these technologies. But I think there's a number of challenges to organizations trying to implement this that, that suggest maybe why it hasn't been done so far.
1: Okay, and, what they- um, and
0: one I think you alluded to a little earlier is just the infrastructure investment. Mm-hmm. You know, So you have to get the specialized devices. They're not cheap. You have to get one for everybody, right?
1: Do you, though? You don't need to have one per person, right?
0: Well, I guess anyone who you want to use it. It's a headset. You know, you don't want to be putting on someone else's headset. Really? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Growing up in the the North where we get cold winters, the warning back when we were kids is never wear someone else's hat in the winter because of fear of lice. People were afraid that if one kid has lice and somebody else puts his hat on, Soon the whole class is going to have them. I fortunately dodged lice my entire youth, but they would do. They would. We would actually have um, days in class where you know it turned out that one kid was lousy, <laughs> and so they would um, they would search all of us. The nurses would come into the class and use t- tongue depressors and search all of our hair to to see who else might be <laughs> contaminated. <sighs>
1: No, but I, I think in organizations, I don't think the proposition is get one for every employee. I think certainly in all the demonstrations that I've seen in different like those innovation hubs that I've referenced before, they had a couple and everybody was using the same ones.
0: Yeah, but those are demos, right? Those sure, are demo sure. sessions. So I think if organizations were, were wanting to seriously think about how this could augment something that they do, uh, I think it would it would be like getting your employees a laptop.
1: But I, oh, right, I see what you're saying. But I think in terms of, so I'm thinking of the stress reduction use case, which I think is so Mm -hmm. compelling. And to me, it's like a low hanging fruit because the the corrosive effect of high stress in the workplace are so damaging to individuals Mm -hmm. and to organizations alike. And if you can implement something like this, and by the way, one or two of the papers even talked about cheaper alternatives to these headsets right like an immersive room where you could project images and videos onto the walls of the room to create a similar effect to me it's such a a low-hanging fruit i don't understand why not more organizations do that
0: yeah i i think again i think we might start to see it um that infrastructure investment is a barrier
1: oh but even in this scenario you don't need to buy a headset for each individual employee just buy a, a you, know, you maybe you want to sanitize them between the sessions or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I went I went skiing last week with my daughter, and I don't have my own ski helmet, so I rent a ski helmet. And I was thinking, geez, I really hope they spray these after <laughs> every use. Um, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you could conceivably reduce that infrastructure investment, which means one of the other challenges is is I think building business processes that use these things. Right? It's mm-hmm. just. They're not a part of the ways in which we work mm-hmm. in organizations. So thinking of use cases, I think is a is probably one of the things that has impeded its adoption. You know, the technology's cool, it's fun, but it doesn't fit with the way we work currently. I always tell a story to my students about how I listened to the a radio, and they immediately say, I'm ancient when I say I was listening to the radio, but um, listened to a radio program years and years ago, probably twenty years ago. And they were talking about a new technology, a new innovative technology, but it was still top secret. So they couldn't say what it was. And so there was a full hour. It was Science Friday on National Public Radio, full hour of people talking about how it was going to change everything about our society. It was going to change. It was specifically a transportation technology, and it was just going to be revolutionary. That was 20 years ago. Any guess what that technology was?
1: A hoverboard.
0: Uh, close. It was the Segway, right? Segway, and it didn't right. Like very few people have technology, have Segway devices. Yeah, and they now have the hoverboard. You know, that is sort of derived from some of that same technology, but it didn't revolutionize things. And part of the reason is that it doesn't fit anywhere. It doesn't fit with the ways in which we we go about in in cities you know it's too big for the sidewalk it's too small for a street would be dangerous in the street Mm -hmm. and so the only places you do see it do see it adopted are sort of places with wide open pathways like cities that have big avenues like washington dc or uh, malls you know the famous paul blart mall cop application so there's things like that but it it it's a technology that is very cool but it, if it doesn't fit, then it inhibits its adoption. And I think something like that may have impeded its, a, the adoption of virtual or augmented. But we should say uh, an umbrella term that often gets used for these two together is extended reality or XR because we just don't have the business process built.
1: Yeah. I wonder if it's also a matter of these technologies being perceived as kind of a novelty still. Mm-hmm. that yeah. still sits on the periphery of, of what we need to be aware of um, because it's not really ready to be entirely taken up yet.
0: Yeah. Uh, interestingly, one of the things that I think might, one of the reasons I think this might actually take off is just last week, actually less than a week ago, uh, Apple launched its its new augmented reality interface device. And it's a headset. It's called, I believe it's called Vision Pro. So the Apple Vision Pro. And it's basically an augmented reality way of rendering your desktop, right? You can, you can work on all your applications at the same time as you can do entertainment. You can watch a movie in, that feels like you're at an IMAX theater or a surround theater.
1: So who do they market um, it to? Is it to con- individual consumers or to enterprises?
0: I think it's consumers. I think the, they're marketing right. it to consumers. The question is, could that same technology, if it really does have these efficiency enhancing gains, which I think could be very real will it be taken up by enterprises? I have, I have started regularly when I text people, I use voice to text. So I will speak what I say into my text, right? Right. And I have found since starting to do that, whenever I'm writing emails, I think, shit, why don't I just get a microphone and speak this into the email? Or when I'm writing something in word, I think the same thing. Well, you know, technology like this, because it has voice capture as well as visual rendering. Um, I think could could start to I mean that that's already possible now, but I think it could start to make it much more widespread, which has, you know, huge possibilities for efficiencies.
1: Yeah. I wonder what is the the push pull dynamic here. Meaning on the one hand, we have the organizations that need to take up these technologies and we maybe there's still a gap between the benefits that they can get from this and the awareness of these benefits on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you have the the providers angle here and to what degree they're actually pushing down these technologies to enterprises versus consumers
0: yeah it's a good question uh it seems like most of the marketing is to consumers
1: yeah that's what i'm saying it seems like there's still yeah, right. a, a gap there that needs to be filled because yeah. uh,
0: well and and that could be around building those use cases those ways in which this could be productively applied in an enterprise
1: yeah, but I think the use cases we've known about at least some pretty compelling ones for a while. Like you said, that mm-hmm. that article from Porter was from 2017, and I'm sure there were others right earlier than 2017. Um, yeah, I think maybe there's uh, uh, an issue of of aligning financial imperatives on both of these sides of the equation to make this happen. And I'm I'm sure that you know the costs of of producing these things have gone down significantly, like everything else, sure. right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, but there are a couple other challenges worth at least noting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One is the some of the ethical questions like privacy invasion. So if you recall, Google, more than six years ago, it launched their Google, this is the word, this is the phrase that I cannot get <laughs> out of my mouth, their Google Glass project. There you go. And this was an augmented reality device. You know, it was basically a, a headset, you know, not a small headset, not, you know, basically look like a pair of glasses with a little cube in the corner that would be that would render augmented reality. And that project burned out. Now, as I recall from the story, there were some organizational dynamics that helped it burn out. But one of the challenges was that it wasn't welcome because it was seen as an invasion of privacy, meaning there's a camera attached. Somebody walks in to your establishment with a pair of Google Google, Google glasses on. they could be recording anything, right? Mm-hmm. And and people were made uncomfortable. So I remember when that project when that project was still alive, and they were sending out sets of this, these these uh, devices to people. Uh, there were places where people were told, "You're not allowed to wear those in here." You know, right. There were like bars or restaurants where people said, "We don't allow those." And it was because of the concern about uh, privacy invasion.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. How do you how do you overcome something like this?
0: I. I That's a good question. I think within organizations, you sort of, you might have to say, where is it permissible and where is it not? Hmm. Right. So uh, I went to the gym. This was a couple of years ago, but I remember going to the gym and I was in the locker room changing and some guy was on his phone and another guy in the gym says, Hey, you can't have that in here. And I'm thinking, what do you mean? He can't have his phone. And the, the argumentative fellow, which I know you're assuming it was me, but it was not, <laughs> uh, was saying, you, you, can't, you can't have your phone out in the locker room. And then basically what he was saying is he was concerned that it, that he could be recording,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: By having his phone out, he could be recording people walking around naked in the locker room. Um, and so I, I would think organizations would have to say, you know, where can we use these devices and where do we not want them?
1: Yeah, I think if you have it, you know, if the use case is within an organization to start with and not just generally in society at a restaurant or a bar or out in the open, like on the street or something, I think that's already a step forward. And I guess, yes, like with, I suppose, with other technologies, you would need to establish security and safety regulations, right? Yeah, policy. Yeah. So perhaps this is not an insurmountable obstacle, but it's certainly something that organizations need to think about consciously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the last challenge that that occurs to me is the concern over distraction. So when that Google Glass project was active, I remember there was some sort of spoof videos that were going up about things popping up to the degree that even though it was in theory, augmented reality it was like blocking out people's ability to see the world around them. And so yeah. this concern about distraction is is yeah. another one. Like, again, even with the uh, the augmented reality. Dashboard or windscreen, uh, windshield, um, you could imagine if it's digitally connected, then it's hackable. And, you know, a high profile person driving around in a car with an augmented reality feed could conceivably have their windshield suddenly go black, right?
1: So, considering everything that we said in terms of the benefits and the obstacles, what's your. If you were uh, a chief strategist for a large organization who was considering using these tools now uh, for uh, a couple of different use cases, like let's say design mm-hmm. or um, marketing purposes, or stress reduction and relaxation techniques for for employees, what what would your recommendation be? Would you say yes, go ahead, do it now, but think carefully about what you want to do, or never, or wait a couple more years and see where the wind is blowing.
0: So in this regard, I'm a big fan of what's called the real options approach, right? So real options akin to financial options. I won't try to give a seminar on financial options, but the basic premise with financial options is you buy a small or a, a a relatively small price. You buy the ability to later buy yeah. or sell underlying security so rather than buy a thousand shares of ibm i could buy a call option that would enable me to buy a thousand shares of ibm at a certain price two months from now you know the strike date is what it's called and the the point of this is that it enables you to to essentially buy the upside right and hedge against the downside you're paying the relatively comparatively small amount for the option but if you got to that point and you didn't want to use it because the price wasn't right to buy or sell at, at your option price, then you just don't do it. And you're out what you paid for the option, but you're not out you know, the, the loss on the shares itself. Right. And so you're essentially, for a relatively small price, buying the upside on some financial option. Well, in a real options approach, you try and do that same thing where you see, are there ways that we can make a small investment today? that would enable us, if this does take off, to make a larger investment, to, to really move in and not be behind the curve in the future. So with these technologies, I think a real options approach would make a lot of sense. So base may, maybe have organizations set up a team, mm-hmm. what's sometimes called a heavyweight team, You know, just a, 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 a team of people whose job it is to explore the technology, to start to make some small investments, to get a sense of the applications, such that if a year from now this is blowing up, that organization isn't playing catch-up. They're then able to say, okay, we already have some sense of how to do this. Let's push in. Let's let's make a bigger investment.
1: Can I ask a, a follow-up question to that? Sure. Which I, I, I think I, I know what the answer is going to be, but I just want to make sure that, I'm, that we're on the same page here. So do you believe that it's more likely that these technologies will... Uh, explode, as you said, in the next, let's say, one to five years, or would they go in the same direction as the Segway did?
0: So my guess is that they are going to explode. Now, I don't have a crystal ball, so it could be, or, you know, I think you and I have talked previously, another technology that I often reference here is virtual world technology. So about 15 years ago, virtual worlds were there was a lot of hype around them. So this is things, what we now call the metaverse, right? Back then we weren't using that phrase metaverse, but now uh, Zuckerberg has repopularized that. And again, that's certainly a related technology, particularly on the virtual world side here. But that, there were Gartner and other industry watchers were saying 15 years ago, this is the future of the internet. It's all going to be online immersive environments. It's where all retail is going to happen. E-commerce is going to move to this virtual world environment. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it sort of died out. Now it is re-emerging, seems to be re-emerging now with the the metaverse vision. But it but it didn't go forward. And I think that's a good case of where a real options approach would have been valuable. You, you know, you buy an island in Second Life, you see if there's ways to approach consumers through it and see if people are interested in it. But a year from now, if it's not working, fine. Close that little group up you made a small investment, you didn't bet the farm on it. Yeah. But if it had taken off, then then you could have, uh, again, uh, increased your investment and started to move deeper in this direction. So yeah. all of that is to say that I do anticipate that this is going to explode in the next three years.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, for a couple of different reasons. I think the the most prohibitive thing In the past to the explosion of these technologies was the the really large investment required investments in infrastructure and you know moore's law the the exponential reduction in prices when it comes to um compute power to um database maintenance to uh processing Mm -hmm. power and so on and so forth everything is becoming increasingly exponentially cheaper and more affordable and so that's one thing and and in conjunction with this, we're seeing—I don't have exact figures in front of me—but we're seeing increasing investments in these sort of technologies, right? And uh, I, mm-hmm. I think both both of these trends are good indicators that these technologies are gonna find a way into the mainstream. And so, I, I completely agree with, with what you said before that organizations need to kind of tiptoe into the water and and uh, yeah, start a trajectory in this in this direction.
0: Agreed. Now, I think we could also reference one other article that we did look at here because I think they have some interesting suggestions. So this is uh, an article by Berman and Pollock in Business Horizons called Strategies for Successful Implementation of Augmented Reality. They focus pretty heavily, I would say, on uh, marketing applications. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I guess they they cover uh, additional elements. Uh, But I'm not going to walk you through their whole model of strategies, but I think a couple key points are worth noting um, That that you need to start by figuring out what your AR or VR objectives are. So rather than just say, it's a new technology, let's use it. I think it's important to say, what could it do for us? What would we want to achieve through these before just playing around with it, right? So being sort of deliberate in assessing the ways in which it could be used. Um, before starting that search for which specific technologies or modes of uh, extended reality do we want to play in?
1: Yes, I, I, I completely agree. I think this is this is good advice in general for any investment that you make in technology. Don't just buy a technology because you think everybody else is going to have it. You need to have a very good understanding of what you need it for, what problems it's going to solve for you, or what new opportunities it's going to enable. And what sort of processes and strategies it's going to be embedded within for you to be able to make any kind of um, derive any sort of value from it. And as both you and I know, being IS professors, this is something that we've talked about for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years um, since the the field has existed. Really, You, you can't just pour money into technology in the hope that something good is going to happen. You have to have a good idea of how you're actually going to use it.
0: Yeah, the business processes and the people piece, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, this those are the kinds of things, though, that something like a heavyweight team dedicated to the exploration of the technology could work on, right? It's not just acquiring the technology and seeing if it's cool. It's saying, okay, let's think about the targeted applications, and then let's discern what business processes, the ways in which we work, would have to be created or revised or altered to to get value out of the technologies and then you know measure your outcomes is yeah. it is it actually improving you know if you in a retail space if you're creating a virtual reality experience for consumers like ikea did or like other uh, retailers did it, does it actually increase consumer buying behavior the research suggests that it does in those few case studies but i think for individual organizations they should measure that is it improving uh, consumer loyalty, customer loyalty—is it improving engagement with our products and services? In the in the maintenance use case we talked about, is it improving efficiency of our maintenance personnel?
1: Mm. Yeah. Does it reduce stress in the way that we hoped that it would?
0: Yeah. Right. Right. And again, those could be done with fairly small scale experiments. You know, that team could draw in a small number of employees, uh, work them through something like a employee wellness program like that and see what the impacts are. And then if it's working, expand it. And you will have already built that institutional knowledge about about how to leverage these tools.
1: Yeah, I I would add what might be obvious to some people, which is that, and again, this is something that we've been talking about for decades um, in in, um, technology implementation, and and why so many IT projects fail is because we don't have buy-in from the executive branch, from the brass of the organization. So it's not just enough to do your research and even have a devoted, a dedicated team to exploring the potential of a certain technology. Once you buy into this, once you make the decision to buy it, you actually you should have, you know, the full and explicit and public endorsement of the management of the organization if you actually want people to you know, use the technology, um, and and use it in a meaningful and productive way.
0: Yeah, somebody has to champion
1: yeah because if people don't feel like they have like it's like an afterthought or Mm -hmm. yet another tedious time-consuming and distracting change process initiative because as anybody who works in an organization knows these happen on a regular basis Mm -hmm. so if they feel like it's just another one of those then they're not going to bother with it and then your chances of, of failure and of having thrown money for no good reason Um, increase. So yes, definitely public um, endorsement and real endorsement from, from management is crucial.
0: Yeah. And the, along those same lines, I think if you do have within an organization, if you have a team that is leading this exploration, they need to have a certain degree of independence, right? One of the things we know with uh, mergers and acquisitions is a lot of times a company will buy a smaller firm that is engaged in some new technology thinking, okay, we're just gonna acquire them and they already know how to use it, but then they subject them to their own resource constraints and, um, you know, profit expectations, business unit expectations. And it can often kill the goose that lays the golden egg. You know, it's, it's sort of, mm-hmm. it, it can crush this, uh, the value that you saw in that firm that you acquired. So enabling firm, you know, the teams to, to do their activities with a degree of independence, I think is also really crucial
1: yeah Okay, um, did we cover just about everything we wanted to cover or was there yeah, I think so? Any concluding remarks that you wanted to add?
0: No, I want to find out what went down today. Let's do that. me to go
1: first. it depends Does what you have um is going to make me chuckle uh
0: i don't think so <laughs> um because what i found what i found was a lot of deaths and a lot of births um okay so you could choose if you want to do birthdays or, or deaths there was one particular historical death that i thought was intriguing so
1: okay well let's go with that one
0: okay so i want to see if you can guess who it was but in 1587 on this day in 1587 there was a noteworthy death in england any thoughts on who that might be
1: 1587 in england uh was it a royalty of some sort yes now you're gonna test my story my very limited historical knowledge of of um of england uh what era are we talking about
0: the elizabethan era
1: elizabethan was it a a queen that perished
0: it was you're getting there
1: was it the queen elizabeth
0: it it was not queen elizabeth it was her rival and half-sister i believe uh mary queen of scots so mary queen of scots who contended with queen elizabeth for control of the throne was executed on this day executed in 1587 or for what for uh, contending with her sister for the control of the throne so as i recall there was also some religious overtones so as i i believe mary queen of scots was a catholic and so the competition for the throne also had the religious overtones between the catholics and protestant Protestant Reformation of course reached the shores of England with Elizabeth I's father, Henry VIII, who created broke from the Catholic Church and created the Anglican Church. Uh, but I think Mary uh, had been advocating for the restoration of Catholicism uh, but also for she wanted to she wanted to take the throne from her sister and so Elizabeth uh, there was a plot, I forget the details. Uh, but there was a plot actually to overthrow elizabeth led by mary's followers and so when she was taken into custody elizabeth said all right get rid of this one
1: so can i just say it feels like the questions that you're asking me in this segment are heavily tilted towards your your own people's history (laughs) i i i feel like i'm being marginalized (laughs) I'm, i'm i'm being triggered by this sean
0: so the last one was a, in the U.S. context. You're right.
1: This one. Well, the not. U.S. is like a an extension of England. So
0: I'm not English.
1: Well, but you're American, and th- therefore you're by extension English as well.
0: Okay, I could I could give you. I, we could try another one. Now this would be Americans, uh, but there were three significant people whose birthday occurred on this date, or yeah, on this day. And I could give you the years and see if you can name. I think you could possibly come up with two of them. I'm guessing you're not going to come up with the third. Okay. So two of them were Hollywood legends. One was born this day in 1931.
1: Is it a male or a female?
0: It is a male.
1: Gary Cooper. No, that's he would have been born earlier than that, right?
0: Yeah, he would have been a little older. I can I can add, and this might help you get it, this person died only twenty-four years later. Twenty-four years later.
1: Oh, would it be James Dean?
0: It is James Dean. Good job. Yeah, yeah, very nice. And I'm just going to give you the other Hollywood uh, uh, figure was Lana Turner.
1: I don't even know the name.
0: Oh, she was a a big uh, Hollywood star in the 40s and early 50s. And then was there a third? She was born in 1920. On this date, looks okay. like. Uh, so you won't like this one. This is a military figure, born this day in 1820, a United States military figure.
1: Um, is it General Lee?
0: No, you're in the right zone, though. Opposite, opposite, opposite side.
1: side. It's not Lincoln, is it? No, I don't know.
0: It's Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman.
1: Oh, Sherman, as in the the tank the Sherman tank.
0: Yes, and Sherman's march to the sea. Yes.
1: That I'm not familiar with. What's what's the march to the sea?
0: Uh so he if you've seen Gone with the Wind?
1: Uh I'm aware of the movie. I've not okay. seen it. No, not the okay. whole thing. If you
0: ever see it there's a very big scene where Atlanta is burning. Okay. And Sherman waged a campaign across Georgia where he basically went to the to the Atlantic Ocean, uh burning much of the the uh, cities and infrastructure as he went and that's referred to as sherman's march to the sea
1: wow okay frankly sean
0: come on bring it home finish it
1: (laughs) i don't give a damn no i do it's an interesting story I, i wasn't aware of it so i i have something for you today which by the way we're a day apart right i'm a day ahead of you so for me it's the 9th of february um there's certain notable or noteworthy observances and holidays so there is a certain day that's apparently i was not aware of it but apparently it's it's commemorated worldwide that's devoted to a specific type of food what day is it today that celebrated worldwide dedicated to a specific type of food
0: particular kind of food okay so i'm going to guess
1: spaghetti oh you're pretty close it's like spaghetti adjacent okay so it is a
0: a a pasta
1: of some sort okay from the same country but not pasta
0: Okay, okay. So, pizza.
1: Yes, today is National Pizza Day. <laughs> all
0: right. All right. <laughs> Got there pretty quickly.
1: Okay, let me let, let me give you another one though. And I'll I'll give you a hint so that you you have a a chance. So the year is 1964. The band is the Beatles. What happened today? To the Beatles in 1964.
0: Was it their appearance on Ed Sullivan?
1: Yes. Was Sean, it really? Congratulations. Yep.
0: All right, I'll take it. It was the famous event that launched their U.S. their stardom in the United States.
1: Do you do you know how many people watched that show?
0: No. Please share. Have a guess. So I'm assuming the population of the United States at the time was roughly uh, 120 million, maybe 150 million. So mm-hmm. let's say 30, a whopping 30 million.
1: So according to this, um, it says 73.7 million viewers watched their appearance. Oh, my God. That had to be half the population
0: of the country at the time. Oh,
1: it's crazy, isn't it?
0: That is crazy. That's pretty wild. Yeah, That's a good one. Well, we are coming up in the United States this week to two days, three days from now, is the the most viewed event on television in the United States every single year. Mm -hmm. What do you think that is? Uh, The Super Bowl? The Super Bowl is Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll probably be releasing after the Super Bowl, so our listeners will already know who won
1: is uh taylor swift's boyfriend playing he
0: is so the he he plays for the kansas city chiefs he's a tight end for the kansas city chiefs and um and you know he's there's a lot of debate in the u.s right now because uh women all over the country have tried to antagonize their boyfriends by saying that taylor swift has made travis kelsey into a thing and travis kelsey's I think pretty clearly going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of the best tight, tight ends of his era and already has two Super Bowls. If he wins another one this weekend, that's pretty sterling accomplishment. So uh, uh, we will see.
1: And on that tantalizing note, I think we will draw to an end here. Sounds good. All right, John, thanks very much for this conversation. We'll talk again soon. See you soon.